Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist's Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses unique med considerations for patients at the end of life and how to help fine-tune meds for these patients. Our guest today is Dr. Dwight Blair from Lower Cape Fear Life Care and New Hanover Regional Medical Center. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on December 16, 2021. And now, the CE information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. None of the speakers have anything to disclose. Now, let's join TRC editor Dr. Lori Dickerson and start our discussion. Let's talk now about um, end-of-life care and how end-of-life care is bringing up unique net issues. And, of course, uh, it's also bringing up unique issues in, in light of COVID, and we'll talk about that a little bit also as we go through this discussion. So, Dewey, to get us started, um, can you talk about the core meds uh, to give comfort to patients at the end-of-life, like we've discussed here at the beginning of the article? Sure. So, you know, I think some of this, as we go through some of these questions, may come up to be dependent on what you consider end of life and you know a little bit of time frame there you know hospice in the last few days of life at home versus um, you know the last six months of life versus you're dying a year out and so some of that may come up as we go through some of these questions but core medication wise I think opiates are the the workhorse um, have been the workhorse will continue to be the workhorse primarily morphine simply because it's out there, got the most data behind it, it's cheap, it's available, comes in lots of different forms and lots of different concentrations. Uh, and can be used for lots of different things, anywhere from pain to air hunger, even helps with anxiety related to those things. Benzos, you know, again, the A and the ham sandwich there, if you will, for the Ativan, and, and the Ativan itself, probably the most available and most used, you know, for anxiety, for air hunger as well, usually as a backup to opioids. And then the, the, the Haldol in this, I, I know uh, that Haldol wasn't part of their dose pack, for instance. Um, it still is part of our dose pack. I don't do hospice per se, but I've, I've been out in hospice trips. And I've seen the dose pack and I've been through a couple different hospices through fellowship, um, all of which use Haldol. Um, and Haldol helps for the antipsychotic you know, properties, I suppose, as far as the agitation, restlessness, um, even air hunger as well, uh, but also as an anti-medic. Um, okay. So it's, it's pretty helpful. Zofran is very widely used as well. So I don't want to discount that as an anti-nausea, right. but a lot of times the, the uh, anti-dopamine will be part of the, the core package, so to speak. Gotcha. Well, that's a great, great way to kick that off. And I, um, you know, uh, as sort of just the background basis for what this comfort kit is and what's typically uh, sort of the core meds. But well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about opioids. And, you know, of course, there are many nuances to opioid use, but we try to sort of hone in on some of the ones that can cause problems and can get folks into trouble um, in terms of underdosing of pain and, and maybe overdosing, but typically underdosing. And should we 
we consider concentrated opioid solutions? And do you typically start with those or do you move to those? And how does that work for you? I think a lot of it depends on your previous exposure and tolerance. Um, although for most folks at home, you know, if we're going to focus on the, the home crowd for a second, anything that you can get away with that's not having to be swallowed and not having to be injected is going to be good. So the sublingual and buccal kind of administration with low volume. So the, the typically the first go-to is Roxanol, for instance, the 20 milligram per ml uh, morphine or oxycodone. Uh, just a lot more flexible than two, two, two milligram or even four milligram per mLs that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's um, the, the standard in the dose kit, for instance, is Roxanol. And, you know, we have had a lot of feedback from pharmacists uh, talking about, you know, uh, what we could write in our article to help prescribers limit errors in terms of writing these prescriptions uh, because of errors with concentrations and, of course, with calculations um, and leading often to underdosing. So I'm just wondering if you can sort of walk us through how you write those scripts in terms of uh, trying to limit, limit those errors, do we? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is to verify what product you're looking for. And I think that's the, the biggest thing I run into is just people double checking, you know, this 20 milligram per ml is not the stock on the on the shelf type of thing that the pharmacist usually sees. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not always written very well by the prescriber for that matter. It's just morphine. So mm -hmm. if you're really looking for this, I think you need to specify. And then um, I will write volume and um, dose as well on there gotcha. and, and uh, even on the electronic scripts I'll specify that mm -hmm. um, but certainly the ones that are printed out I don't know if that's helpful or not but it's it, it is there's especially for morphine there's a lot of different products out there and, and if you're not uh, careful on how you're specifying it it would be very easy yes to make, to make that mistake for sure now okay let's uh, talk a little bit more about uh, choosing among the buccal or sublingual opioid solutions versus a transdermal patch. And in our article, you know, we do suggest either of those options, uh, buccally or sublingually, or considering a fentanyl patch. And um, I'm wondering, do we, you know, when do you typically stick with a sublingual or buccal administration versus uh, going with a fentanyl patch? And I think a lot of that comes down to previous exposure, you know, duration of use and overall toleration that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of people that have an acute crump, COVID's a great example, um, that end up eventually going home. And it's not like they, they've been healthy, unfortunately, coming into this and, and had a pretty um, acute decline that they don't have a lot of tolerance or background opioid exposure. And the, the buccal sublingual very frequently PRN um, works just fine, you know, just responsive mm -hmm. to symptoms. Um, you know, more a transdermal patch when anything really, when I'm starting to think long acting medications, I'm, I'm looking more that they're, they have a, a certain dose threshold. And usually that's about 50 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent per day uh, to kind of think about that. That said, you know, and, and fentanyl can be tough, obviously it's very potent. Um, but if you're kind of getting up there towards the 50 OMEs per day, that's, that's where you start thinking about sustained release. The patch is certainly helpful again in patients that can't swallow um, that need a, a modicum of, of background control, and our options are fairly limited. You know, certainly for mm -hmm. long-acting, you're, you're limited to you know, either a patch, methadone, because it's intrinsically long-acting. Uh, buprenorphine is another one that's not used so much at end of life, but we're starting to use that a little bit more for pain control, um, mm -hmm. so because the Butrans patch is, is available. Mm -hmm. that's um, right. But but you almost always start with the buccal sublingual. You know, the, gotcha. the, the, the fentanyl as a new introduction right at end of life would actually be more an exception than a rule. 
And Andy, I was just curious from your perspective as a hospitalist and managing some of these folks too, is that consistent with your experience too, switching to buccal or sublingual administration versus using a patch and any considerations with using the patch in the hospital? Yeah, actually, uh, what was said is 100% my experience. I actually do uh, quite a bit of home hospice too, and I find uh, even people that can't swallow um, the, the really concentrated stuff under the tongue doesn't uh, make them choke because it's such a small volume and I, and I can usually control people. It's only the the really, really high doses that you worry that will wear off overnight and there's not a family member to administer mm. as frequently as you can that, that you run into those problems. But most mm. of what was said is exactly right on. And do we, we do have, we have a lot of questions coming in about the patches um, and concerns about patients who are cachectic and uh, issues regarding absorption. And so uh, we do actually have some wording in our article uh, that meds may not be absorbed well in patients, transdermal meds uh, may not be absorbed well in patients with cachexia since their blood flow may be diverted. Um, and so is, is that a concern or in those situations where they may not respond to a given dose, would you just increase the dose uh, of, the, of the fentanyl patch, for example? So interestingly, I looked at this in fellowship just because I'd heard this for years, you know, even as a pharmacist and certainly as a, as a hospitalist about the absorption issues. And there's, there's a, a good bit of studies out there. A lot of them are just kind of retrospective type of things and, and data mining, but there's mixed data. If you look at the pharmacokinetics and, and pharmacologic kind of based studies, that serum levels, um, some some of the studies looked at milligrams left in the patch after a certain amount of time on, you know, just to see how much was actually extracted from the patch. And there's there's mixed data. So it's it's kind of out there that it's, you know, sometimes cachectic patients get more in, sometimes less. I think really it's probably more helpful to look at the, the clinical outcomes, the functional kind of, of outcomes of things. Um, and I don't think anything I've seen really says that it makes a difference across the board in somebody that's cachectic. Um, I think you titrate to clinical response either way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the bottom line in my gotcha. book. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if actually it makes that big of a difference. Gotcha. And titrating to clinical responses thing. Very mm -hmm. good. Excellent help there. And we are actually having a lot of questions coming in about other routes of administration, subcutaneous or rectal. And, uh, you know, we do have a lot of these covered in our chart. Um, which is uh, giving meds by alternate routes. But Dewey, I was curious if you could just comment on when you might switch to sub-Q or rectal administration and how often you are, you know, uh, how often you're doing that. So I guess I'll start with rectal just as, well, you know, take your pick, which one's more burdensome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the rectal obviously has its downsides just from what it is. Although if you look at the, the, the pharmacology and, and, and whatnot of pharmaceutics maybe that are available out there. It's a very available source. You know, there's a lot of things that are very well absorbed, um, sometimes even more so than oral, just a little hard to predict. Um, but again, most of these things that you use can be titrated to effect and and, and whatnot. So it's, it's an alternative source that isn't used very often just because of the cumbersome nature of it um, and I guess the distaste of it from the caregivers giving it. Um, so it's not used a whole lot, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So Q, if you're in a situation where you're not able to, uh, if you need continuous delivery, for instance, and in a, in a patch is not ideal, almost all injection uh, therapy given at home is sub-Q or in hospice care centers for that matter, it's almost always sub-Q. Um, you know, dosing is very similar to IV. It's very flexible. It's very easy to get a site in and out. Um, mm -hmm. So most of the time, 
I don't know that there's any rule. We, neither are used as a rule. The sublingual and buccal administration works for most folks. I think gotcha. I've seen rectal be a good backup. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen sub Q just with the injection nature of it being more more cumbersome, but that is a good backup as well, including PCAs at home. Okay. Well, great discussion on pain control. I do want to uh, move us on to our next segment, and we do talk about GI symptoms. And I think, you know, we're all aware of the importance of staying ahead of opioid-induced constipation. Um, we make the recommendation to use a scheduled osmotic or a stimulant laxative or both, and, and to just keep pushing the dose as opioids are titrated up to, uh, try, to try to minimize that. Um, but the more controversial or, or a confusing thing, I think, is about treating nausea. And we, you did touch a little bit on this at the beginning of the session. And, you know, we say in our article about nausea to stick with ondansetron if chemo is the culprit, but to try a low-dose haloperidol or olanzapine for other causes. And uh, I think that we do have some audience questions coming in to wonder why any psychotics such as these for nausea at end of life when they're typically not otherwise the choices for nausea. And so um, maybe you can comment on that, Dewey. So just to start out, there is a great study that came out maybe a year ago, if that, on olanzapine and chemo-induced nausea, that it's super effective. It was a new in the mm -hmm. journal. Um, so it, it's it's out there, and, and I think um, on Dancetron when it first came out was was particularly for chemo. That's what the labeling was. I remember that as a pharmacist mm -hmm. 30 years ago. But um, and now we we sprinkle it everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So all of these work through the chemotactic trigger zone. You know, centrally is, is how the mechanism of action is. Um, and I think the antipsychotics again at end of life work because they are dual function or they're used because of dual function with the antipsychotic mechanism as well as the anti-emetic mechanism. Um, and it, they, we don't differentiate at that point so much by the cause. You know, at end of life, hopefully it's not chemo driving that, mm -hmm. um, although <laughs> depends on which oncologist yeah. you're talking to sometimes. But, right, right. Um, so I think all the above are okay and all the above are functional and, and effective. Um, the problem with Zofran used to be the expense. It has become more cheap. It comes as a Zytus formation, you know, formulation, which is helpful. Um, but I can tell you, in my experience, um, we use a whole lot of Haldol. I use a whole lot in the hospital as a consultant there at end of life. Mm -hmm. um, but usually it's, it's a, as an alternative to, to Zofran as well. So both are on. Okay. Well, I was ask, I might yeah. share our listeners' question on this one, that uh, we are using more olanzapine even outside of uh, chemotherapy, but usually not before we've tried or Fenergan, and of course those skinetizing derivatives are structurally kind of related. And so I'm curious, are we advocating this ahead of those or that's not been my practice certainly. And increasingly we're seeing these patients in the hospital for longer term. So we're, mm -hmm. we see these folks frequently. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you in the hospital, just as a, a system, we've gotten away from the IV Fenergan and Composine a little bit. Um, so Zofran tends to be the go-to. As a palliative practitioner, nobody else uses the, the uh, antipsychotics as nausea, and we have to convince the nurses that's what they're there for, even if you write it on there. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that's just a cultural thing with palliative care, but that, that's a lot of my go-to, and it seems to work you know, very, very mm -hmm. well. Um, and it's not that I don't use Fenergan and Composine, but they're, they're yeah. not as go-to as they used to be. Okay, great discussion there. I do want to move on to uh, discussing air hunger. And, you know, uh, we make uh, 
a recommendation similar to what you said at the beginning, Dewey, considering increasing the opioid or adding a benzo for air hunger. But I think the question that uh, comes up a lot is, um, you know, what is air hunger? And is, is it a sign of pain or anxiety or, you know, can patients have air hunger and not be in pain or be anxious? And, uh, you know, of course, because we see the opioid and the benzo and we make that assumption. So um, can you give us a, a little bit on what is air hunger and what are the causes, underlying factors, Dewey? So I think Air hunger. I don't know the the you know the Webster dictionary definition of that, but it's the central sensation and perception of shortness of breath and and, and you know quote unquote gasping for air can definitely be independent of pain. Can definitely be independent of anxiety. I think it drives anxiety a lot of times, mm -hmm. but you can see it separately. Mm -hmm. um, and I think opioids again are the workhorse here as far as addressing that perception. They don't cause. They don't help the cause. You know, I've seen this with pneumonia, see it with COVID. COVID is, is certainly, uh, air hunger is a huge problem um, post-extubation or even pre-extubation or pre-intubation if you're not getting there. Mm -hmm. um, just that that perception of, of dyspnea. And uh, opioids tend to be the workhorse, benzos as a backup. And Andy, just wondered if you could comment on that, having, of course, been taking care of a lot of these COVID patients too and, and seeing air hunger and how you're managing it. Yeah, so actually, as I was listening to this discussion, uh, I, I would say this is the single biggest worry of my patients that are dying, that that will mm -hmm. I suffocate. And uh, um, I think just what's been said, you know, you can always find a dose uh, with narcotics to suppress that. And I tell patients, look, I'm not going to let that happen. And uh, and more generally calms that down so that mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, a benzo is is my go-to while I'm waiting for this to dial up and I'm still having a problem, I will add it on, but I can almost always get there with morphine. Mm -hmm. yep. Great points, it, and uh, go ahead, yeah. I, can, I, I agree with the comment too, that if at end of life symptomatology, air hunger wins every time over pain, over everything else, and just the, the, the anticipatory fear of that, totally. um, yep. for sure. Hey, can I ask a question, Dewey, while you yeah. brought that other thing up? Um, uh, you hadn't mentioned, uh, um, uh, end of life delirium. Uh, so I, I, I have sort of gotten away from the antipsychotics for this because I do see a small percentage of my patients getting almost wilder on the antipsychotics, and I've been using benzos instead. Do you have any thoughts on on the the the, the dying, very delirious patients? Yeah, I mean, if you want to use the term terminal delirium or or whatnot, I actually had a patient today that this was a, a, a hotly debated topic. I actually will start with a dose of opioid first to make sure it's not pain. Um, but then as, a, as kind of the main direction towards that, I use benzos as well. You do see a lot of paradoxical kind of agitation with, with antipsychotics for some reason. So I, I, the, the benzo will be the workhorse. I usually do add some opioid in there just to make sure there's not some unrecognized pain that's driving it. Very helpful. Thank you very much. Very good. Well, let's actually talk about secretions next. And uh, again, I think a lot of this comes down to education. And we make the point that reassuring family members and patients, but family members too, that noisy breathing or the quote death rattle at the end of life patients doesn't usually mean discomfort. And Andrea, I just actually wanted to hear from you a little bit about, you know, this as well as the air hunger and, and dealing with the, the families that you care for in terms of addressing these concerns and how you address that with the family members um, in addition to the patients. Yeah, so, you know, the majority of my patients who are in hospice transition out of the hospital into a hospice setting with our hospice care providers, and my biggest role is 
to um, when I'm talking to patients and families about that transition and asking what they would like to know about what how this process will evolve. And again, they bring up the same concerns that everybody's addressing. Am I, how is my breathing? Am I, how are you gonna manage my pain? Um, people have had concerns and watched uh, their fam other family members pass and seen this death rattle. And so what I talk with them through is the different things that we have available to help and help provide reassurance um, that the colleagues that I'm transitioning um, my patients to at this point um, are very skilled and will help address all those concerns and you know, basically reassure them that 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 we hear them and understand and our goal is to help make them as comfortable as possible. Um. Very good. And Dewey, we do note in our article here in terms of secretions, prescribing sublingual atropine eye drops or hyoscyamine solution. And I'm assuming that those are your go-tos in these situations. Um, sublingual atropine is the uh, cheapest. So yes. that's what's usually used. Um, hyoscyamine tends to be a little bit more expensive. Uh, scopolamine patch, again, the delay in the onset is a little mm -hmm. bit of a, uh, a downside to that. Like a pyrrolate IV in the hospital is what I use right at the end of life just because the central effects are, are lower. But um, none of them have really been proven to make that big of a difference. There is one study that's recent out of somewhere in, I think it was UK, but somewhere in Europe that was a, a, a scopolamine salt that we don't have here that showed mm. it did make a difference. I, I can't remember how they measured that. Mm. But I think sometimes doing something um, helps the family feel better. And it's not that we're you know, assuming the patient would like the family to feel better about what's going on type of thing more than helping the patient maybe. But right. I agree, just kind of managing expectations ahead of time and, and trying mm -hmm. to get that across. It has never been shown that that's distressing to anybody mm -hmm. Asia-wise. Um, but atropine eye drops is the short answer of what's used most of the time. And then uh, just to move us along, we also have some recommendations about de-prescribing uh, medications, of course, to uh, limit the use of medications that are no longer contributing to, uh, you know, um, you know, quality of life because simply pill burden in its own right, um, it decreases quality of life. And so, Dewey, how do you explain that to patient, to families who see us withdrawing these things and may have those sorts of questions? Again, I think a lot of that is managing expectations ahead of time. Um, there are people that have been on medications for a million years and are very married to those, uh, even if they're not going to do anything at the, the end of life. And um, I think it's all about education and, and again, managing expectations uh, mm -hmm. ahead of time with that. But, you know, trying to swallow pills that you're going to end up choking on and becoming discomfort, you know, having the discomfort from, there's, there's you can paint the picture that, that these are causing more suffering than, than benefit. Um, but you definitely want to educate ahead of time. Pulling the rug out is never a good idea. Very good. Very good discussion. Not, yeah, go ahead, Andy. We, uh, we don't comment on anticoagulation and anticoagulant mm. side. It might be worth adding there too, especially for the very end of life, the, the, the bleeding versus the, the random thrombosis sure. risk. Sure. Very good point, Andy. And, and we, you know. A little broader too, Lori, yep. just real quick. You know, any touch point healthcare system where there's a change in goals of care, which it certainly is, is a great chance review pill burden. I'm not sure just stopping these. If you're going to say stop, I wouldn't necessarily add diabetes. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of months of life to go. Blood sugars mm -hmm. are 400. Yep. can help patients, obviously. But but yes. it, as Andy least to just reviewing pill burden at this touch point. Yes. Great. Very good point. So we'll nuance those examples. That's a great point. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter, 
Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.